Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by Cameron and Stella from the Mercuranians Podcast, who are joining me. They're driving through Denver right now on their way back from the Northwest Astrology Conference. So, hey, welcome, and thanks for joining me. Yeah, hello, thank you. Hello. Thank you so much for having us here. We're just ecstatic to be here with you. Yeah, yeah. such a pleasure. It's always good to meet up with other fellow astrology podcasters, and um, it just sort of fell together this way. We didn't really plan it, but today's actually the day of a Mercury-Uranus conjunction, so it's actually <laughs> kind of perfect for, for our meeting today in terms of the name of your podcast. Yeah, yeah. totally. <laughs> yeah, our name comes from Mercury and Uranus, right? Mercuranian, and it's just like, bizarre how perfectly that aligned we couldn't have elected it even if we wanted to <laughs> right yeah so it's a uh, here's our chart for right now for the moment so it's a mercury uranus conjunction at 20 degrees of taurus mm-hmm. cool all right so you're coming back you're doing a road trip on the way back from the northwest astrology conference um this wasn't your first conference you've both been to other conferences before what conference how many have you been to um, I think this is my fifth conference over the last few years in person. Um, but yeah, I've been to Norwalk, uh, ISAR, also um, the Astrology Gathering out in Lilydale, New York. Um, yeah, I volunteered with Stell last year. We were both there. What was your first? What year was your first conference? Twenty twenty one at that okay. conference in Lilydale. Got it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and I skipped out on the twenty twenty one Lilydale, but I was at Norwalk last year, then ISAR, and then. The astrology gathering that fall so this was number four for me got it yeah the astrology gathering isn't like a super popular one but it's really really fun really close kind of more of an intimate conference it's in like a super spiritual town so that was a really nice contrast from isar and norwak yeah did you both do norwak last year mm-hmm. okay so what was the comparison because i know I, one of the comments i heard i think austin told me after when i got the debrief because i wasn't able to make it this year he said that it felt like a little bit more um congealed like people are more coming together because many people had gone to the last year's conference which was the first one back since the pandemic i think i guess they took what two years off of from doing in-person conferences mm. after they did their one in 2019 so they they did um 2022 last year was the first one back in person again but there's so many new people in the community and part of meeting up with conferences is catching up with old friends that you've seen at previous conferences. So was that sort of a vibe in terms of this year being the second one back, that it was a lot of reconnecting with people you had seen last year? Yeah, very, very palpable. I mean, last year was Mars and Jupiter together in Aries, right? It's like it was totally all over the place like that. We there was just so many meeting new people, new things. Like everything was very, very new for mm. me, especially because it was my first conference ever. Mm. But this year, you saw a lot of familiar faces, you know, names and stuff like that. And it, while it was less, I don't know, chaotic, um, it was still like really, really fun. Yeah, that was nice though, because to me, it yeah. felt like a one year change, I guess, you know, like the Jupiter and Aries. The Mars conjunct, like you said, it was, yeah, there was just a lot of commotion. And this year it did feel a little more contained, a little bit more, um, I guess, expected or stable. Everything went relatively well. Um, everyone had a great time. So I thought it was, yeah, it was a spectacular weekend. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I mean, like last year, there were there were dozens of people in the lobby until well after midnight. Yeah, you know, I have so to say, too. yeah, we were yeah. in like a 6 a.m. sunrise <laughs> gang. And this year it was like the lobby was dead after midnight. I was a little disappointed because 
on a Friday night. Yeah. Okay. It, there was nobody down there. Yeah, yeah. I was really surprised by that, actually. It was very early bed, very early to bed for, for a lot of people, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe people were conserving their energy a little bit better compared to last year. Yeah. Probably that, yeah. For the better. For right. the better, at least on the first night. Right. Uh -huh. um, well, that sounds good. So conferences are so important because one of the differences is just like the online astrological community these days versus in-person ones. And I know, what, over a decade ago, around 2010 or so, when I was the president of the Association for Young Astrologers, so much of what we tried to do is get find ways to do scholarships and things to help younger people get to conferences because that's where you that's one of the places where you can really interface with the existing established astrological community and that that's really important and you don't really understand the importance of it until you get there in person and actually experience it. Totally. Um, so were you guys able to connect with a lot of different astrologers just from different generations and, and eras? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I feel like that's one of the most beautiful things about being at an astrology conference is because um, you know, everywhere you go, you're going to meet someone who you can automatically have <laughs> an hours long conversation with and it doesn't matter how old you are whether they're you know someone someone in their 20s talking to someone in their 60s it's like everyone's just there to to meet and share their passion and love for astrology so it's a really welcoming um environment and definitely though like off of what you were saying about the importance of that kind of connection compared to digital um spaces um i think it's really really important and just there's nowhere else you can can go to find a community like that um, and i know for myself last year like at norwalk i met to other people from my city in Salem, Massachusetts, where a few months afterwards, we actually started um, a local astrology group now out of Salem. Um, and that wouldn't have happened if we didn't meet up at Norwalk first. So yeah, it's a special opportunity for sure. Yeah, there's sometimes things like that that happen that are unique that can only happen when people get up and meet in person because it's kind of like different atoms that are like, you know, shooting around inside a glass jar. And then sometimes there's these collisions that you can't anticipate until they happen. Um, one of the things I was reflecting on actually as it was happening this year that I realized um, afterwards, I was thinking about the early history of the traditional revival and how um, Project Hindsight got started at a United Astrology Conference in 1992 when Robert Hand and Robert Zoller and Robert Schmidt and his wife Ellen Black met up in person and like formulated this idea of doing some sort of archive for historical astrological texts. And I think that was the original name was like Arhat. Um, yeah, but then by the next year, they had formulated this idea of doing this unique subscription service, translating astrological texts, and then releasing them to subscribers who signed up to get a new one every time a new one came out. And they announced that um, for the first time at the Northwest Astrology Conference in Seattle in 1983. So it was really interesting because this meant this was the 30-year anniversary of that announcement of Project Hindsight originally and just how much things have changed in the past 30 years and how that sort of transformed or has been one of the things that's transformed the astrological community. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's huge. Even just the internet alone, I'm sure, has done crazy things for like the community i can't even imagine what it would be like to not have just like limitless sources at my fingertips but um like per your earlier comment about like being online and in like the digital community versus being at a conference and like actually getting to speak with people there's so much like beauty and value to that because you hear about these kinds of projects that are butting up right you mm -hmm. hear these kinds of conversations between astrologers where they're like oh yeah 
we're doing X project, keep an eye out for it later this year. Or there's like the free like note cards and posters section where there's like all of this little stuff that you can look out for and you would you would never know that, right? And I don't know, sometimes interactions between like differing schools of thought online can be so abrasive. Right. Whereas like with a at a conference, when you run into somebody who doesn't share your same viewpoint, you're both immersed and ready to learn. Whereas that yeah. dynamic does not really carry over onto the internet. Right. And I think right. also, especially with what you were saying about it being, you know, this 30 year major cycle completion for the community and for the world. Um, in terms of the revival of traditional astrology, like I think that was really alive and like felt at this conference because there was almost more discussion in the sense of like, all right, like now this stuff is out, you know, these techniques are, you know, being practiced and written about and we can kind of all see it coming alive, like everything is, you know, working as it should. But now we're kind of at this crossroads of like integrating um, the technical skill that we have at our fingertips now from all of that ancient material with, um, you know, the, I guess the, the perspective that, um, you know, 20th century astrology sort of began to bring in the lens of, I guess, you know, counseling and um, yeah, depth psychology. And now it's just kind of like this merger point between those two perspectives, like Stephen Forrest, evening keynote kind of spoke to that, uh, that journey that we're on as a community now. So I think a lot of people were talking about that as well in that stage that we've kind of crossed, like you brought up. Of synthesizing things as a community? Yeah, or, or just kind of navigating how, um, I guess, the soulful element, um, you know, and, 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 you know, everyone has their own practice, everyone's going to approach things differently, but how, how we can holistically incorporate, um, I guess, the psycho-spiritual element to an astrological practice that's still really well-grounded in technique and in tradition. Mm, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, good, that's a good question in terms of... Um, you know, once you can do something technically and that's been accomplished, like what you should do or how you can find a way for it to be helpful or healing to a client rather than just um, something that's just impressive from a technical standpoint. Yeah. I mean, I'm being reminded of like Eric Perdue's like recent lecture at Norwalk on finding the name of your daemon, right? Of your daemon and um, using like the Hebrew alphabet and a number of different steps you can find the name and finding the name might be like oh okay cool now what like cool name should i get it tattooed or it can be something that you immerse in your spiritual practice that you really like take to heart and use in a metaphysical way and i think it's like really wrong to kind of I, i'm not saying that you did this but to kind of like say like oh like traditional astrologers are like less spiritual or sure, yeah. modern astrology is like too esoteric like that's not really it's a little bit extreme like on both ends but i think i think you catch my drift. yeah no i mean there's an incredibly soulful element to ancient astrology still um i mean between yeah, i mean a lot of the great philosophical discussion that you've brought up on the podcast about different elements of um, yeah, I guess the the spiritual component of someone's nativity or birth chart that um, can be discovered. Um, but yeah, I think it's just this kind of, like we were saying, it's this merger point where, you know, it can be impressive from a technical standpoint and it can be, you know, almost like I feel like uh, for myself, you know, as a, in the younger stages of my lifelong kind of practice with astrology, I know it's, it can kind of feel 
like a bit of an ego trip at first because it's like when you start seeing it working and you start doing more readings and it's it can feel like kind of all-powerful like you can read the future the past or anything um but i think it's i think it's important that like practitioners are able to be you know all of us can be grounded in the sense that you know well people are coming to us as practitioners because they need or guidance you know or help um or you know whatever it may be in, in any kind of situation so i think it's just yeah a good um good jumping off point for more discussion in the community about how that can kind of blend the best of both worlds as we move into the future yeah that might be a good like saturn and pisces discussion that we'll have over the course of the next three years mm. uh because that does tend to be a more compassionate sign and versus uh you know the past six years of saturn transiting through first capricorn and then aquarius and um you know some of that's at least coincided a little bit with the popularization some people have noted of traditional astrology um in a more mainstream sense over the past six years um so yeah that could be an interesting like dimension of that i keep thinking about how in the 19 was it like 50s or 60s when saturn was in pisces the example i used on the year ahead forecast um that nick Dagan best shared with me about how um major television channels in the united states like start switched from black and white television to color television as saturn was going through pisces and it was sort of like accomplished during that period and just this idea of of seeing that kind of change not just on a technical level in different parts of society but also in other areas like that like perhaps in astrology or things like that yeah i i love that you brought up this kind of analogy of seeing doing something in color versus in black and white right mm -hmm. and when you think about what how much energy had to go into the um, reconstruction of the tradition right all of the projects and everything that came with it um it, it you don't really have the time to color in all of these things and make them magical as you're discovering them and uncovering them but now that we have a much clearer framework we can build these like beautiful we can color it right we have the basics we have i mean there's not basics there's a whole tradition but and there's lots that we still have to uncover but um yeah i think you you caught my drift it's just there like the spiritual engrossment within your astrological practice as the ancients did mm -hmm. is something that i think is also coming back yeah i think the revival of astrological magic is just yeah. getting started which is going hand in hand with all of this and that's really where i see the next dimension of this fusion happening where more people are empowered to work um on a spiritual level um with the, the the spirits the daimons the planets the guardians of this reality you know however um you know an astrologer would or could advise them to um based off of some kind of principle of you know remediation or working with difficult planets or placements or challenging or obstacles you know things in the chart that present difficult life circumstances how can we work with those and attune ourselves to changing our, our internal internal perspective or spiritual perspective that causes that kind of outer shift in our reality that we experience externally hmm. right yeah there's a lot of stuff about the diamond that i've been researching recently in ancient astrology and how that was conceptualized and how you had the place of you know good diamond which was the 11th house and bad diamond which is the 12th house and 
um, how the different astrologers conceptualize that in the Hellenistic tradition, as well as um, the notion that a lot of the major philosophies of like Hermeticism and Gnosticism and Neoplatonism shared about the soul descending through the planetary spheres and picking up these qualities from the planets that after death you like give up as the soul ascends through the planetary spheres. Mm-hmm. And how that's tied in with some of that, and how that in and of itself may have been the original, or at least um, the traditional approach to psychological astrology, essentially was associating the the planets with those qualities or properties of the soul that you sort of get upon incarnating or or what have you. Yeah, um, yeah. So it'd be interesting to see how things like that might be looked at um, within the context of modern astrology or how that might gel with some of the modern notions of of psychological astrology? Yeah, yeah. I mean, even the celestial spheres, right? That school of thought emerged like pre-Copernican revolution, right? They thought there were fixed crystalline spheres around the earth. And there was a scientific element to that, right? Astrology and science were one. But now we've kind of had this divergence, right, where it's forked off into two different things. Astrology is not science anymore. And so, uh, I don't know, the spheres and the idea of a soul trickling down through these different concrete things which exist out in space around the earth, maybe a reimagining of that that's a little bit more attuned to our physical knowledge today or our scientific knowledge today, I guess, would be better um might come about like during this time too or maybe it's not you're dripping through the spheres you're um collecting them with your gravity or something yeah yeah i feel like it's just like everyone's personal natal chart is your own unique map towards how you're going to ascend back out one day you know the way that we can all prepare ourselves to relinquish those vices that each of the planets kind of offer like in the corpus hermeticum what you were referencing that journey to um yeah withdrawal the consciousness of the mind or the soul from the senses of the body um in a very general way you know that's going to be specialized and detailed for everyone in their own birth chart you know based off of what kinds of imbalances their chart is making them predisposed to working with that energy in that kind of remedial context like we were talking about i really do believe is an an incredibly potent step that anyone can begin to take um, in terms of if you're searching for something to enhance or alter your spiritual direction you know working with the natal chart in that context is um yeah your your personal gateway into divinity right yeah well and that's one of the questions you know that some of those philosophies had in the ancient world were um either a neutrality or sometimes like an antipathy towards the physical world and the physical incarnation because the gnostic um religious sect sects or different philosophies had a much more like negative version of that the material world world is bad and we are trapped here and Mm. the planetary spheres are like gatekeepers that are keeping us trapped and almost like distracting us in a way with these different things that they're associated with in the material world and that our goal is to get the hell out of here and get back to the source somehow um and while some of the hermetic texts had some of that there were others that were a little bit more neutral to positive about the physical world um and didn't take it necessarily that negative of a thing so um it's just interesting when you're mentioning like or or when modern astrologers are, are mentioning 
synthesizing, you know, like a religious or philosophical approach with um, ancient or with technical approaches, one of the questions is just like whose philosophy or what philosophy are we synthesizing? Um, because just different mm. people with different religious or philosophical views come from wildly different perspectives in terms of how they approach astrology. And that's one of the tricky things is um, the astrology itself is somewhat neutral. And so you can't necessarily assume a specific philosophical or, or religious approach mm. just because somebody's an astrologer. Yeah. Yeah. It's a hard, um, hard debate. There's really no, there's going to be no correct answer to it. Everyone's going to have to find that for themselves. Um, but I do think ultimately, like, um, at the end of the day, you know, we all have to prepare our body to, to, to leave our body one day. Um, and I think that the way that, you know, we can all go about doing that is uh, going to come down to just how can you find balance and harmony in your life. And if the natal chart is in any way a map towards what you can do or what your potential is, um, then maximizing that effect towards, um, yeah, finding, uh, finding a sense of purpose in your life, I think, is the bottom line you know, that everyone could agree on at least. Yeah. Well, that's a good idea is, is establishing like what the bottom line is that all astrologers could agree on. And it would have to be some very basic things like that, that what, that the birth chart, the alignment of the planets and the cosmos, the moment a person is born has something to say about their future and what will happen in their life, um, either ex internally or externally in their future. And also that it may relate to some extent to their telling you something about the per the meaning of the person's life in the broadest sense. Mm. I guess those are two things that we could say is true no matter what philosophical approach or school of astrology you're approaching things from. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I don't know if we will ever reach a point in the modern era where we have widespread astrological consensus and synthesis over let alone techniques, God forbid, like philosophy and your religious views independent of astrology now, right? Because we did have that divide historically where astrology was no longer science and it's no longer religion. It's something kind of in between and both at the same time. And so when you have uh, so many differing schools of thought, I think that um, one of our goals as a community should be not to form a consensus, but to ensure that there's space for all of them. And that um, to be able to put yourself maybe in a different school of thought and further your practice by doing so, right? There's plenty, I mean, a very simple example of this would be Western astrologers studying like Jyotish, right? Um, where you put yourself in a different school of thought, right? You put on a different cultural lens to look at astrology through. And you see how that reframes not only your practice, but your worldview and your own divinatory practice or spiritual practice in general. Yeah, I see people, one of, one of the prerequisites for that, that people often don't understand when they're studying different traditions or approaches is to try as much as you can to drop all of your preconceptions and all of your own personal beliefs going into it. And just experiment like with what if I just embraced this approach in its entirety in terms of its philosophy and its techniques and everything else and just tried it out for a period of time almost as if you're trying on a new pair of clothes um, or if you're 
you're trying out like a new profession and you're just like you're playing that role for a period of time because one of the things I think people don't do or, or do that can be problematic when trying out different traditions is they hold on too much to whatever their pre-existing assumptions about things are. Um, so, and I see that sometimes when people, I don't know, like some, somebody asks if if they study Hellenistic astrology, can they, you know, use whatever house system instead of the one that was used more most then, or can they use these? You know, rulerships or the signs of the zodiac instead of the traditional rulerships or what have you, um, or with um, Jyotish, you know, different questions like that. Can I still use whatever Western approach and import that into? And usually the best thing is instead just to sort of start with a blank slate and learn things and just understand it on its own terms first. And then later, if you want to modify things, that's okay, but at least you've given it an honest shot first, I think is usually a good piece of advice. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's it's also just hard to even ask people or, or to be even ready to do that because astrology is just inherently so non-binary that we don't want to like accept at first that something could be so self-contradictory and still work mm -hmm. so well in so many different ways. Um, like there's so many different ways we can encounter those kinds of paradoxical binaries generally in the study of astrology. Um, and I think that's 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 not easy to like approach it, you know. That I think that's why it, it is so esoteric because it is the ultimate blend of as above, you know, so below. It's 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 this irreconcilable fusion of two different worlds, and all we can do is just like you said, really start from the basics and from the beginnings and observe slowly what you find to be true, and just aggregate that over time. And everyone does that in a totally different way, which is also what's really cool. And which is also what's really cool about going to these conferences and meeting other people who, you know, maybe practice some totally eclectic blend of, you know, Uranian and Hellenistic astrology or whatever it is nowadays. Um, yeah, it, it's just really cool because it's that non-binary element of astrology, that mercurial piece of it that makes it so vacillating yet and so uncontained and boundless. Yeah, that's something I, I keep going back and forth and what to call it and i sometimes call it the mercurial element of astrology but i don't know if that because of the connotations that mercurial has today of something different i don't know if that's a good term or sometimes i call it like the hermetic nature of astrology mm -hmm. but just in traditional astrology mercury was ruled by by or astrology was ruled by mercury or by hermes and that part of the insight into that if you always keep that in mind is just that Whenever you come to an issue where it looks like there's two different options that equally seem to be true, like um, the answer, and that it's an either or situation, usually the answer is often that it's both in some way, or there's pieces that are both true in different ways, mm -hmm. just in the same way that Mercury comes up in that way over and over again in the technical part of astrology. Mm -hmm. um, you know, being the planet that has its joy in the first house, which is partially above the horizon in the daytime part of the chart and partially below the horizon in the nighttime part of the chart. And he plays that vacillating role between those two seemingly opposite paradigms of night and day or uh, masculine and feminine or, or what have you. Um, I think that's also part of what astrology is just inherently mm -hmm. and is also probably the key to reconciling many of the issues that we find ourselves with these days. Due to the revival of ancient and modern astrology, where you have these seemingly 
wildly different approaches that can't be reconciled, that somehow finding a reconciliation is possible by understanding that both can be true in different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, like to simmer on like modern understandings of that, right? Like a lot of modern astrologers give astrology to Uranus, right? Like if you have Uranus really prominent in the ninth or something, you're an astrologer. And well, Uranus is also a psychopomp, right? I don't, I don't think that Uranus rules Aquarius, but it can only be seen when it's opposite the sun. What's opposite the sun's domicile? Aquarius, right? And so, like, while these aren't believe, while I don't personally use um, Uranus as the ruler of Aquarius, um, it's still you can see how clearly that can be woven into the pre-existing traditional schema, right? You don't have to go out with Saturn and in with Uranus, but it's pretty striking that you can only see this planet when it's opposite the sun and what's opposite the sun, the sun's domicile. Mm. And like Uranus also has this psychopomp nature that Mercury has, where it weaves between the spheres of the celestial sphere, the highest sphere, excuse me, and it um, makes its way back into Saturn's sphere, I guess you could say, or maybe it would have its own little sliver. Um, but weaves its way back into the visible planetary movements because it's not quite a fixed star, but it will always appear as one to us. And I don't know, there's something very modern, right? That's, that can be, that can coexist with the tradition in a way that is not contradictory or offensive to either party involved. Yeah. I think it's a really like the quantum effect of astrology, you know, is this experiencing how can something be like, superpositioned or like in multiple states at once um like for instance with uranus visibly in the sky you were saying you know it only appears kind of for one or two days once a year when it's opposite the sun and it just kind of pops out of nowhere and it just kind of makes me think of like that classical thought experiment of schrodinger's cat just kind of like this little it's a thought experiment in quantum physics to kind of explore what the math is proving about what scientists are discovering about the nature of the universe, which is showing us um, that things can be totally paradoxical. You know, something can be measured to be almost simultaneously in two places at once or affect something on the other side of the universe and have this totally like um, synergized or synchronized effect from light years away. And I think astrology is sort of discovering the same thing that science is. We're kind of running on the same parallel track that's like, our human minds can't rationalize, can't put it into a binary. We're not going to be able to because that's just not how this universe is really designed. Right. Yeah. Uh, in astrology, it's like Schrodinger's house system. It's like, <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Is it, is it, Absolutely. If we can all just laugh about that, then maybe we can accept that dualities exist and they will forever and they'll be both and at the same time. Right. right. The cat, the cat is both in the 12th house and dead and it's in <laughs> and, the 11th house and it's and off having all of its, its cat friends yeah, yeah. absolutely <laughs> frolicking with its friends okay right. <laughs> i like that um yeah no i have been actually thinking about that lately because i had a fourth house whole sign house like mercury retrograde transit recently the one in taurus and it had to me reflecting on and like going back to where i grew up and like going back and seeing sort of my house where i grew mm-hmm. up and things like that it was like a retrograde, and so it was interesting because it was very literal. It was like a returning back to mm. one's home um, in a very literal way, but also um, 
going around and driving around my old, old neighborhoods and just like seeing how everything had changed over the past 30 years. And in the quadrant houses, Mercury went retrograde in my third house, but in whole sign, it was in my fourth. And that was just giving me some insights because I know the medieval astrologers were trying to reconcile whole sign houses and degree-based forms of house division like mm. Placidus and other quadrant systems. And we see some hints of them trying to say different things. And even in Firmicus, he makes some statements about using both at the same time. Um, but that was giving me some ideas and some insights about that and how you might approach it and how it might truly be both, which is, I know, something a lot of people say or have said anecdotally in different ways. But I think one of the tasks now is to see, is it both in the same way in that it literally just, they have the same exact meanings and the same purpose and they just operate at the same time? Or are there different contexts in which you can use both? That way you have a handle on saying like what each one says or the way in which each one works, I think is one of the big questions to solve today. Yeah. Do you want to go? If you, you can go ahead if you have something to say. Yeah, well, I was just going to say, like, it makes me think of, like, in physics, you know, the observer effect is, like, you change the outcome or the physical, um, I guess, calculation or result of an experiment just by observing it. And it makes me think of, like, well, okay, like, what is divination then? You know, if people can throw bones or read through smoke or scry into their third eye, you know, it's like, I think it's just that, like, as long as the intention is there to receive a symbol, you know, from the universe to observe some kind of symbolic result off of what is being, uh, you know, initiated on the diviner's part, you know, we're going to get something. You know, if two different diviners look at the same entrails or look at the same bones, they could say different things sort of in the same way, you know, just like two astrologers that use different house systems are going to kind of unravel the same information. And it's just about that instant observer effect moment of like, I'm going to look at it because this is my symbol set that I work with. And I know if I use it like this, I can say this and it will probably be true. And I think that's just kind of, again, that irreconcilable duality with astrology. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I had a very similar train of thought, but just the idea that like, I don't know, do you know what angularity is and how the four angles can work independently of signs? If you remove the zodiac from the equation, and can you point to a chart where Mars culminates and like know what that means? Can you point it out in the sky? You know, I feel like, um, like that serves a distinct purpose. And while it may not be a different purpose once we divide that into house systems, it has a distinct power to it that is different than when you look at a whole sign system because you you. I would never ever read the houses from fortune through a quadrant lens like that's that seems incongruent to me but like when i was first getting involved with astral magic i was pretty strictly like whole signs like i would use a little bit of quadrant more emphasis on the angles than anything and then i started doing magic and i was like yeah that mercury was definitely in the 12th house for this experience that this item just brought to me so that I don't know and like different using different systems for different purposes right that's also a whole topic in itself yeah i mean it's really right. hard because again i think it's just going to come back to everyone is their own best astrologer right it's mm -hmm. like you're going to over time and it's not even about technical skill to me it's just about being able to have the acquaintance with a symbol system that is specific enough to you to relay the information you need to someone 
whatever it could be about. Sure. Yeah. And just what the person is asking about as well and what they want to know. Mm. Um, so one of the topics that came up earlier that we mentioned briefly is you got, you said, one of you said that you talked to like Rick Levine and he was contrasting like the resources he had when he was starting out as an astrologer versus what what's available to all of you. What was the quote from that again? Yeah, he basically, um, we were with Rick Levine and he told us this story about how when he was younger, when he was getting into astrology, there were three books in the astrology section at a library, maybe five if you were lucky, right? And um, you, you could check this library and that library, but oh, same copy, you know? There's only so much information that you could even access. But now, I mean... Find figuring out how to filter through the information that's available to me was a huge step in my learning journey. Like just being able to figure out what is going to contain the information that I'm looking for, because there's thousands and thousands of blog posts and articles and tweets and all of these things. You have things ranging from like scholarly, like academic papers that you can access on JSTOR to 30-second TikTok videos telling you something else as well. And especially like when you're first starting, that's very overwhelming. Because like the minute the algorithm learns you're looking into astrology, that's all the content you get too. So I don't know, it's you have to figure out how to navigate the information that you have available to you. And it's a huge blessing. Like I'm eternally grateful for the fact that I had access to your podcast and publications online and just all of these different voices. It's been such a key component to my practice. But at the same time, it made like my very my first year like a lot very stressful, honestly. It was really hard to navigate that. Yeah, that's a really interesting difference for astrologers starting now versus 20 years ago when I was starting or 30 years ago or 40 or what have you and having having much more limited resources back then, um, like when Rick Levine's talking about an astrologer might have access to like a handful of just like core books that everybody reads, which is like some Dane Rudyard or some like you know Rob Hand's Planets in Transit, copy of the Ephemeris. Mm-hmm. You might be doing charts by hand yeah. for that matter, not even having and even pre-internet, so not having access to that even. When I was starting, the internet was still relatively new in like 1999, 2000, and thankfully astro.com existed so i could get free chart calculations mm-hmm. which is crucial and we don't think about how that's changed because you know that's relatively recent in- innovation only like 20 25 years ago now um but even the internet was like much earlier in that time period so you didn't have like podcasts or like blogs or anything like that necessarily there were fewer even websites to draw information from um but it, one of the things that was interesting is that it led to sort of artificially a little bit more um, consistency or most people are on the same page more or less, even though there are different approaches or different sort of um, slightly different approaches to astrology. It led to a little bit more um, people being on the same page because it was like everybody had read that one Rob Hand book or, or what have you versus today there's such a huge amount of resources that people can be coming from like wildly different places in terms of their understanding of astrology. Um, but yeah, that's interesting thinking about how the struggle now is not 
a lack of resources, but too many. Like even if you just restricted yourself to podcasts, you'd still have like 30 different podcasts or what have you to, uh, or, or YouTube channels. You'd have like a hundred different YouTube channels to, you know, decide which ones to watch. Um, and that's, that's a challenge. And they have hundreds of hours of content and mm -hmm. you're seeing negative reviews on this one, but excellent reviews on another one. But then you don't quite agree with the worldview or the philosophy of this creator. It, it's a very nuanced issue. And so like while navigating the sea, as you said earlier, it's really important to get your foundations, get your basics, learn something, at, even if you don't quite agree with it take it as it is. And then if you want to tweak it, tweak it a little bit later. Um, don't also don't be shy to tweak things a little bit, especially depending on who your source is and what you're planning on doing with this information. I'm not saying go ahead and reevaluate the entire dignity schema and claim that that's the way it's supposed to be all along. I'm just saying that if you see something that you don't totally agree with, like, I don't know, Mars in the ninth house makes men who lack intuition, right? But you have Mars in the ninth and you have a great intuition. Keep in mind that there's context to that. Keep in mind that mm -hmm. there's always more information out there. And you also probably are not the first person to have thought of your idea. Um, just like knowing how to look for it can be a little hard on the internet too, because like sometimes you type in an astrological term and Google starts giving you, I don't know, plumbing companies <laughs> or math. So yeah, I feel like I often do the Google search of like some random specific thing and nothing comes up, but then I'm like, oh, I have to type astrology afterwards and then it will <laughs> yeah. generate what I'm looking for. That's really funny because I had a few years ago, a astrology conference sent me an invitation to speak, but they sent it to a Chris Brennan from wow. Ireland who was like a plumber. No. And <laughs> thankfully he didn't accept. And we've later <laughs> during a Mercury retrograde, like figured out what had happened when they sent me to my correct email address. but. <laughs> I was funny. able to speak at the conference, but it gave me a great like opening joke for that lecture. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. hilarious. Yeah. Was it the UFC fighter? Or I don't know if it's UFC. There's like a no. That's a different. That's a different <laughs> guy. Apparently, there's a lot more Chris Brennan's than I realized. But yeah, we're all battling for the supremacy of the Google search results. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, isn't everybody nowadays? Right. Which yeah. is a really key part of finding astrological information as well. You right. Know? Yeah, you have to consider too, like what. What is circulated is what the algorithm's going to push out more. So the sources that aren't, maybe are more valuable than many others are just not, not seen. You know, what's hidden will remain hidden. But also I do think like, I don't know, kind of what you were saying, I guess, was kind of making me think of like the quote from this amazing astrologer, William Lilly, who always said, um, kind of writes like, mix judgment with art, like in the way that you're reading a chart. And I think approaching your own learning journeys, very similar in the sense that like, um, there's an element to which I know for myself, I feel like I was sort of always guided, even if I didn't know where the next step was. It was kind of like, I'm always on a trail of breadcrumbs and it's kind of bringing me somewhere. And astrology is a crazy rat race in that sense, because there's no curriculum. There, there never will be. It's just so vast. And, you know, for everyone, it's, it's just going to come down to, you know, finding, hopefully everyone can, you know, at least studied with, you know, a teacher or a mentor or someone who can be a personal um, you know, source of gnosis in a way, or experience. Um, but yeah, beyond that, navigating the internet, I think it's just going to take time for um, more, you know, digital archives to, um, you know, compile different digital sources or 
um, you know, textbooks that may, or, or any of these books that become available digitally, you know, as PDFs. Um, I think just as maybe more uh, work is done to make those arch digital archives, um, you know, and, and your website is great, actually. You know, the Hellenistic Astrology website has so much on there, especially for the ancient, like, uh, manuscripts and, like, um, facsimile editions of, you know, whatever old scanned books are on there. Um, but yeah, I think it's just going to come down to growing a better collection of credible resources and networks of teachers who are out there and sharing and guiding people. Yeah, I'm actually in the process of redesigning the Hellenistic website right now. Oh, wow. So cool. I just want to mention that in case it looks a little wonky in the meantime. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Um, there was something I had to say about that, but I just totally lost it. It'll come back to me eventually. Yeah, there's something I had as well. I wrote down teachers and lineage because it brings up interesting oh. things about that I've been thinking about recently. Mm. Um, yeah. That's kind of an important component of finding a teacher can be really helpful sometimes, although it can be kind of hit and miss because just because you found a teacher doesn't mean you found a good teacher. But sometimes if you do find a good connection, that can be really crucial. Oh yeah, that's what I was actually going to mention is um, you mentioned sometimes finding something and it being a, like important, seemingly random, but important and meaningful. And that's actually something I believe in a lot that I've, I was thinking about recently and reflecting on and realizing it was part of my core philosophy, but where sometimes I find myself in a situation where something happens or something negative happens and it pushes me in a certain direction and I have to ask, just like stop and ask myself why or what will come from this if I go this direction. And sometimes it's not a direction I'm wanting to go, but I'll be pushed in a direction sort of forcefully by circumstances and events and fortune, but then it'll lead to something that was really important that I wouldn't have done otherwise, or sometimes even just a random or chance finding a passage in a book or something like that has been important or like crucial. And I actually think there's things like that that happen all the time in people's lives that they just don't fully realize because we're not used to noticing those patterns and, and understanding the importance of them because they seem like minor things at the time and it's usually only in retrospect that you realize the significance of something of a chance meeting or a chance encounter or what have you but i think as astrologers it's actually really important that we pay more attention to those things because it's part of the whole nexus of fate that astrology is very much tied up in and sometimes that's what the astrology is indicating is a chance encounter that will be more important than you realize at the time, but sometimes the astrology itself is telling you that something important is happening and that you need to pay attention to it. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I'll also add that sometimes there's value in not paying attention to it, right? Like sometimes there's value in letting life catch you by surprise because I got like especially with my ambiguous ascendant, like I fell, I've fallen down so many rabbit holes, just like picking apart every experience of my life. And like, I kind of reached this point where I was like, I need to take a step back and like exist in the world as, as me and stop trying to look for what is trying to be sad and just yeah. listen yeah, in well, day-to-day life. There's also like that balance between looking for synchronicities that are like purely astrological versus like you know, just if it was like some book you were gifted when you were like six and you oh, randomly right. reopened it, you know, and it led you to random peak period. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's oh, definitely well. a balance between because anything taken to an extreme can be like unhealthy. And I, mm -hmm. I know I've, I've certainly seen 
for example, if somebody had like struggles with issues like that um, already, where they see things that aren't happening or they read too far into things, sometimes that you can have like a malfunctioning of that faculty of the mind that can just sort of like run wild. And if you're not sort of keeping things in check or or um, that that it can go to a bad place, so you definitely want to be careful. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, I think it's 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 challenging because that mercurial side of astrology which is so geometric and and fractal and it's like it's so beautiful because it's always generating beautiful cosmic symphony however you want to observe it it's also like um i guess what's the right analogy it's like a um like a train wreck you know that you you don't want to look at but you can't not look away from it right it's like it, it it's it's beautiful like on its own but there's a line between yeah going too far with anything that's just not you know, we're not we're not meant to be only up there. You know, we're we're down here. So it's, I know for myself, like pretty mercurial person. Yeah, there's phases of going in and out of that <laughs> that that path. But yeah, wandering and maintaining presence in the body is very good, <laughs> necessary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for anyone. Sure. I did just want to backtrack just a little bit, if that's okay. Um, unless somebody had more conversation. Okay. Because you were mentioning um, having a teacher and having like a good teacher, right? Mm. Because not everybody always has the time or the resources to be able to take a course and be certified. And so part of that really involves finding a teacher who you can connect with, right? Whether it's somebody's sources, I mean, someone's like actual course or a book in an author's reading style that you can really, really like comprehend and you like to enjoy, right? Whether that teacher is a formal authority figure or simply having being talking in a Twitter space and someone saying, actually, sorry, Jupiter rules Pisces, not the moon, the moon rules Cancer. Little things like that that accumulate over time. And of course, keep a critical eye because not everything you hear is true. But also just the emphasis on community. There's teachers everywhere. You just have to keep your eyes open for them. Yeah. I think it's this, again, this tough straddling the line of like, well, you know, if we're saying it's the what's important is knowing your symbol set and being acquainted with it over years of, you know, practice that you can be confident enough to say something that will probably be true. Again, with astrology, that's hard because we have this like egregore, you know, it's like a collective consciousness that's been in the tradition and it's been rich with practitioners in a lineage for thousands of years. But at the same time, you know, new schools of thought can emerge and kind of branch off of that, where eventually on the tree, you know, those branches could be very distant, um, but still simultaneously are going to get to, you know, what you're looking for. So it's, it's hard to really say, you know, you need to just study with you know one t- teacher who really knows their you know their stuff right because yeah and like i'm sorry were you gonna i was just gonna say that yeah i mean most of the astrological tradition has been um a textual transmission and sometimes you know learning from a teacher doesn't necessarily mean well it's nice if you can have one-on-one interaction even just learning and studying someone's work and somebody's life's work and internalizing some large part of that can in and of itself set up like a teacher-student relationship. Like I'm thinking of, I don't know, the way that Abu Mashar drew on Ptolemy. So we're talking about two people that lived hundreds of years apart, 
who spoke a different language and lived in a different area of the world, but there was a, a close connection and an emulation between Abu Mashar's works and um, Ptolemy's works. But that's a point that I've made a lot is that um, it's not it's rarely about just like learning under one teacher and then completely emulating those methods, but instead, usually anybody's approach to astrology is basically going to be a synthesis of a few different whatever your primary and most influential set of sources are, especially like let's say you, the two to three most influential um, teachers that you learned from in some manner or another that you really focused on learning their work and learning their approach, that your your own approach to astrology will be sort of a synthesis between those sources you drew on and your own personal observations and experiences during the course of your career. Mm -hmm. um, so that, yeah, learning with a teacher can be not just direct one-on-one -on -one learning, but just studying and really coming to understand somebody's life's work and, and somebody's approach to astrology. Mm -hmm. yeah. Whatever format that's in, whether it's listening to lectures they've given or reading their books or uh, what have you. Yeah. And I mean, as long as the person is alive, there's emails out there, there's ways to contact astrologers. Yeah. Even if you have a question, if you're active in online communities, chances are you'll come across some kind of astro nerd who's read all of everything five times over, basically, you know, and they can tell you which page of Dorotheus that thing you're trying to remember came from. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so, like, you, looking for help when you need it. And also, that was kind of why I was saying don't be shy to disagree, right? Because that's part of your own personal practice is going to be shaped, yes, of course, by the tradition. You have to learn from somewhere. You're not just mm -hmm. pulling it out of nowhere. But also, like, you can hear something and practice it one way and not really resonate with it and see someone else who uses it differently and be like, yeah, I, yeah. I agree with that. Yeah, and it can change over time. You know, mm -hmm. everyone's practice is going to shift and morph with the more you learn and the more you interact with the astrology. Um, but I think it's also, like, interesting because um, I guess just thinking about, like, that kind of transmission textually versus being with a teacher there is that important element to which at one point it's like, well, you know, the teacher dies, you know, and the student becomes a teacher. And like, there's that element where even in, you know, astrology, we have these concepts of like fortune and spirit, which is kind of analogous to like, you know, what you're given and what you create or the past and the future. Um, that point, the lot of spirit or the part of spirit was also called like the part of things to come or the part of the future um, in, in some translations and traditions. So, I feel like there is that, you know, crucial element here to which we're only being handed the torch to just give it off again. So there has to be creation and innovation and especially right now in a time where it is so ripe for all of that between this merging of thousands of years of different traditions from across the world and with technology, the power and capability that we have now to run, um, you know, statistical research into these different methods. Um, yeah, it's just the beginning of a really exciting time. and everyone's just going to start, you know, the, the tree is just starting to branch. Like it's just, you know, we have the big trunks, but I think it's just about to get even maybe crazier. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Those periods in which astrology, in which there's a transmission and older forms of astrology are synthesized together with whatever the contemporary prevailing paradigms are, are always really um, great times in the history of astrology when it sort of flourishes after that happens. Mm. 
Um, yeah, but there's a lot of uh, like older astrologers from the previous generation, especially the Pluto and Leo generation, that are starting to pass away now. And so it's something I've been thinking about is collecting. You know, I've been trying to collect some of those stories and some of those oral histories, especially about that, because I've just been reflecting a lot on recently how different people's stories um, end, and sometimes you know their their work continues on through their students but sometimes the telling of those stories um still needs to happen and in terms mm-hmm. of passing some of that knowledge and information down about what happened in the past and you know what led to where the tradition is today yeah i mean being able to say not just what has changed but who changed it, how they impacted the field, what this person brought not only to their clients, but to their friends and to their social circles is a really important part of not just astrological history, but history in general, right? right. If you, like you can, there, there's so many ways that this can be taken, but if you try and have, if you have a conversation with somebody you're only going to get so much from mm-hmm. that conversation. And that's how a book works, right? It's the same same principle. If you don't have that context to the person behind these words on pages, you're missing a big part of the tradition. Right. And existing in the world with people. Like, that's not just like about the tradition, like disconnect from like it, it, there's almost a sort of disconnect from the world around you if you are so hyper-focused on the actual words on the pages and the information that can be gleaned, that you're not really pausing and recognizing who's saying it, what importance this project might have had for them. Yeah. I guess the um, more watery side, right. too. And I think just the more nowadays that we start maybe doing a better job of keeping track of those things, you know, astrologers down the road, hundreds and thousands of years from now, not hundreds and thousands, but hundreds of years, you know, it's like they're going to really appreciate that we took the, the care to archive those mm-hmm. changes and the translations or different editions, um, because now we're searching back, you know, 2,000 years ago trying to figure out who the heck Critodemus was. We don't know, but apparently he was, you know, some important uh, transmission figure in, in the tradition. But yeah, 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 that's something I've been thinking about a lot lately because such an important set of events have happened over the past 30 years and i realize people will be going back and studying this yeah, period for forever for a long time for many decades or centuries in the future and right. that some of those stories are being lost as more astrologers that were active then pass away and that sometimes those stories you know are told while a person is alive but they sort mm. of cease to be told up to that that at a certain point um, and yeah, how to how to record some of that or how to preserve some of that um, can be can be tricky. Yeah, well, I think that's a I, great project for Saturn and Pisces to just like the reconciling and containment of the you know the broadness of the tradition or the the larger scope and trying to contain that into uh, something that can be passed on or put towards purpose with that you know larger perspective from the range of time that is being consolidated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, when you, what's that one quote from Valens where he's sad about like his student dying? It's his student who passes. Yeah. Right. Can you do you do, can either of you quote it for me? It was something. I mean, he just says he is doing some technical discussion, and then I think at the end of a book, he 
apologizes for not going into more detail because he says his eyesight is failing and he was also depressed because of the loss of his favorite student. So he hopes that the reader understands and like cuts him some slack, basically. Yeah. And like that little passage, I've heard I've heard that discussed like so many times. That has so much value. Suddenly you pause while you're reading and you're like, this is not just an astrological text, but this is a book written by a person. Right. who has their own journey and there's so much value to that mm-hmm. and, like and, and, and it's the same thing with like used books versus like fresh books right like mm-hmm. when you get a used book i mean if you're into like energy stuff i guess you can feel the energy of the last person who has read it there's their knowledge has kind of seeped in between the lines mm-hmm. and it's a similar kind of idea here yeah, I was just going to say, in some ways, I almost wish we had more of that yeah. from remaining from the ancient texts than the tech. I mean, the techniques are awesome, obviously. It's cool to learn and test things out. But that glimpse into the direct life of what it was like, you know, to be an astrologer 2000 years ago. And your recent episode on the astrology of ancient Egypt, I think, was beautiful and contextualizing and putting images and thoughts into more people's minds about what, what that entailed and what an exciting and thrilling experience that was and societally culturally how different that was to what we experience now um that yeah that i wish we did have more of that and so it's so important going forward to document this and talk about conferences right things like that yeah i do too i wish there was more of that because that's one of the reasons that valens is so special because he does have those personal mm-hmm. digressions and mm-hmm. he also uses so many example charts including his own and mm-hmm. people he knew and different things like that and we see eventually as the tradition progresses, like more and more of that eventually till the point where you get to somebody like William Lilly, where he has like his own autobiography. Um, and then in modern times, you get better and better documentation of the lives or personal lives of some astrologers. But um, yeah, you, you get a lot more when you also know about like the life and backstory behind the technique sometimes, especially because sometimes. <clears throat> sometimes technical discoveries are based on the person's life experience. Mm-hmm. It's not always that way because there's that tension between always between passing on the tradition and just the established whatever the approach is that you learned. And astrologers often attempt to, especially in more older texts, attempt to pass that off as they inherited it. But there's that tension between that part of the tradition versus your own personal innovations. But sometimes personal innovations come from life experiences, either in consulting with clients or in just like things you've observed in your own life that you've seen in work. Like my anecdote earlier of that retrograde through my fourth slash third house and the sort of like conclusions that I drew from that, you know, starts developing like a technical doctrine that maybe somebody will pick up and run with. Um, yeah, but there's, there's both of those. And I do wish we had more of that in terms of some of the tradition. Uh, yeah. And also, like, huge, huge part of conferences is relevant to this conversation today because, like, you can watch Austin Kopic in the astrology podcast, but do you see him and, like, talk to him? You get a different idea of his body language, his tonality, his personality, right? Mm. Because to a degree, everything that is presented somewhere online or in a book or whatever has been refined and distilled in some way. It's being filtered. But you you get a peer in peer behind that when you're face to face with somebody. Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. Right. Yeah. 
I mean, for some reason, I was out walking earlier today and I was thinking about that though, because I can't, like, for example, I was thinking about recording some of my own story with astrology where somebody asked me recently how I got into astrology and I tried to give kind of like the cliff notes, the synopsis version, but there was so much more behind that that I couldn't even explain. You can't actually even, if you tried to like convey the totality of your life, you can't really, and you can't really um, convey all of that. So it's kind of tricky in terms of telling some of those stories. So, so that's just for yourself. Like imagine trying to tell your own story, but then imagine trying to look at another astrologer and write sort of a biography for them. That's all. That could not be even trickier in some mm -hmm. ways. Mm -hmm. I was I mean, thinking about recently with some of those astrologers that have passed on at this point, and like how to tell their stories is some of the things I've been thinking about and struggling with. Yeah. Something that is like common in the field of philosophy is just like reading their like rough drafts even like their unpublished stuff the rough drafts the ideas that got tossed away and they decided that never got published there's it's a really huge thing i'm sure that you have access to that that's like so exciting i'm actually dealing with that right now because i have a rough draft of a translation of an ancient text that this scholar did and over a decade ago, I had an email, email correspondence with him, and he said he'd send me, he said it was just about finished, and he'd send me you know, his draft of it. And then I didn't hear from him, and I contacted him again a year later, and it turned out he had passed away. Um, so I had had a correspondence with his um, widows a few years later, and have for several years, and she just finally sent me like the only surviving version of it that exists which is like a printed manuscript of it because the digital files may not have survived um so figuring out like what to do with that and also there might be a second printed version and it might be an earlier draft from what he was going to publish as the final final and just like how to deal with things like that it's actually it's funny that you mentioned that mm -hmm. that's really cool that that's coming up for astrology too because that's one of my as a philosophy student, that's one of my favorite things is like not actually like your published work, but like your notes, like your journals, like the journals of philosophers that get published tell you more about their philosophies than yeah. their actual right. published work. Yeah, I think mm -hmm. the personal journal is like the ultimate teaching tool. You yeah. know, it's like sitting down, you know, and earlier we were talking about like the daimon or like a guardian spirit or higher energy that's working with the incarnated you know, soul to guide and teach and learn. And I think that personal experience of like, you know, your notebook is your own, um, you know, limitless range of potential for, for learning and discovering and exploring. And I know for myself, like my own personal notebooks are where I have, you know, so many of my personal uh, re revelations or, or insights or, you know, that kind of time to just explore and play. When you're just kind of with your daimon like getting to be playful with it especially with astrology because i don't think it's very hard to i think it's so geometric that if you can have something that's you know astrologically symbolically sound you know you're gonna find or discover something so yeah i think it's just um it's great now like this kind of discussion that we're, we're having this whole you know chat about the, you know containing time and preserving things for the future or lineages and the way that gets passed on in the terms of you know how students reconcile old knowledge and bring new knowledge forward like you know this is very much like a, a simulacrum of the conversations that are happening you know at, at, at conferences like norwak or 
in other kind of communal spaces where astrologers can come together and, and talk about that. So I think this is great that we're throwing a lot of these ideas out to for other people to think about, you know, what 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 can we actually start doing to, you know, make that happen for the future. Yeah. <clears throat> that makes me think though, um, you know, this other issue I was running into, which is that you know, what if the what if a person has like earlier versions of stuff that they didn't want to publish and make their final thoughts and um you know like would you want your rough draft of something to be or your scribblings of something to be the main thing you're known for if it was something that you didn't yourself think was complete or something like that mm. not with that project i was thinking about earlier i was thinking about this as a separate thing recently of an astrologer who passed away who had like earlier preliminary versions of something they were working on but they never completed it so that they themselves never wanted to publish and make the preliminary version their main thing they always had plans to do a final complete one but just like didn't make it weren't able to do that and whether um what the balance is between like honoring a person's intention by not making their rough draft sort of version of something the final thing that they're known for versus um needing to recognize the earliest stuff, if there was something of value to it, I'm not try to explain that, but it's sort of a sort of connected thing I've been thinking about recently. Yeah, I mean, like an artist doesn't want an unfinished painting in a gallery, right? right? Exactly. But at the same time, like there's still a process that happens with every piece of art or a piece of literature or a textbook that someone writes, where each stage is valuable to get insight, both from the reader's perspective. You know, if we don't have the author alive to talk to you know, what their thought process was around why they're organizing their ideas like this. Because, you know, like on our podcast, we're reading through Rhetorius, who is a very, you know, pretty ambiguous ancient figure um, from who we just have this surviving kind of compilation uh, from, you know, these uh, early uh, manuscripts and um, critical editions that were kind of put together. And it's like, we don't really know exactly, you know, the exact order or sequence or methodology behind um, you know, a lot of what we are picking up on. So the more that we do that kind of cross-checking or thinking back or why, what was the intention behind this piece of art or piece of literature or whatever, that actually can in some ways have more to say than just what the text is saying itself, I think. Yeah. I mean, Rhetorius is really interesting because he's, there's a constant question in Rhetorius that, um, he's often like a clearer does clearer versions of things that there's only hints of earlier in the tradition, but you're often not sure if Rhetorius is just making something more obvious that was already there and was implicit in the tradition, but that we don't have as many traces of because we've lost so many sources. Or alternatively, if Rhetorius is doing something new and him elaborating on some of those things represents a progression or development that's happened later in the tradition. Um, we often don't know with Rhetorius, and it's one of the trickiest things about him. I mean, I don't have a solid answer on that, of course. But um, something that we were just recently discussing with Kate was the fact that Rhetorius addresses like derivative houses from fortune and um, planetary periods. And then angular triad. Just yeah, he and introduces, then he introduces the of... well, he introduces the angular triads too, and he does it in such a way that it's almost 
glaringly obvious that, I mean, it, to me it seems like it is, that he's about to introduce ZR, but he never does. He touches on all of the different ZR things, but never quite reaches that point in what he's saying. Sure. He, so, he mentions it in passing at one point um, in this sort of thing that Levant Laszlo translated that is like Rhetorius's approach to how to, to delineate a chart. He does mention in passing at one point to do the releasing technique, as is mentioned in Book in Four of Valens. So it's like he was aware of it and recommended at one point, but he doesn't otherwise have his own treatment. Mm -hmm. Right. But it was interesting because, again, this speaks to what we're talking about with like, you know, there is that piecing together of like, well, you know, it looks like there was intention maybe behind why these chapters would have been organized like that. But there's mm -hmm. just so much ambiguity and so many different steps, you know, in the process of how that, I don't know if you have it in here, but how that book published by the AFA, you know, translated by James Holden, actually came to us from so many other links along the way. Um, but that's just where we're at, you know, right now in terms of recovering a lot of the ancient material. Mm. And also in terms of like recovering and understanding even not so ancient material, right? Um, unfinished Picasso is still Picasso that would go in a museum somewhere, you know? So even if somebody hasn't really finished this work, it still has tremendous value in their, un their knowledge and how they applied that. And even if from the grave, they're scoffing and shaking their head like, ah, I don't know, no, that's not what I said. That's not what I meant. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot of that happening still. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's yeah, like right, some shaking right, his head from the room. Yeah, or even like the thing about like the tenth house representing the mother. You know, as like a potential right. mistranslation that again brings us back to like, well, if enough of an egregore or like consciousness practices this concept, and you know, over time, um, you know, it can actually work. And we talked about that too in our recent episode that we did on the lots, which are like these very kind of mathematical and weirdly behaving points in a chart and there's so many and we were just kind of talking about how like the you know they started developing more and more of these like specific points where there's a there's a time where you have to just think like someone just thought of this you know mm -hmm. like someone just had to put their reasoning together you know their astrological symbolism in their head and kind of craft something like the part of water journeys is like from 15 degrees of cancer to saturn and you know, that distance projected from the degree of the ascendant. And I went back like through my photos and old, you know, just like just looking back at a ton of different moments and like that point happened to be like super active in all of the charts I was looking at. And it's like, at what point can we just say like, is something brought into the tradition enough because people, someone said it and enough people believe it and so it'll work uh, versus, you know, and you know, maybe you can claim some kind of prophetic divine inspiration and the universe was like, you know, we're going to drop this piece of information into your consciousness now and it's just going to work, right? Or like how, you know, we don't know. We don't know how that works, but it's very peculiar. Yeah. I mean, that brings up, you know, there's all sorts of different ways in which astro new astrological techniques are introduced in the tradition. And that could probably be a whole episode into it of itself at some mm -hmm. point. But, you know, one of them that is tricky is sometimes astrologers looking back at earlier texts in the tradition, they can, um, misread or misunderstand something and it can mm -hmm. end up being a creative misunderstanding that leads to the introduction of a new technique that didn't exist earlier. 
Um, but sometimes that that misunderstanding can actually be creative and can be creating something new that can be valid. I mean, other times it doesn't always have to be. It can be just a genuine misunderstanding that leads to a weird branch in the tradition that might not be as as valuable. But there can sometimes be instances where maybe a creative misunderstanding takes place. Um, there's there was actually a, it was a thing that Schmidt that Robert Schmidt always said about like algebra, um, not algebra, but a, a sort of branch of mathematics that there was this mathematician Francois Viette that was going back and trying to reconstruct what he thought was this lost um, approach to mathematics in ancient times. And he ended up creating something new in mathematics that was actually valuable. Mm. But it turned out that his reconstruction, once later scholars went back and looked on it, that he had created something new, even though he thought he was recovering something old. Mm. And I think sometimes that happens and is a possibility that we have to keep in mind um, but we also have to be careful about the other version, which is that sometimes we can read things into the te- into a text that d- didn't exist. Mm. And figuring out the line between the two is always one of the trickiest pieces of that entire process. Well, yeah. and yeah, and I mean, there's never going to be a clear line in the sand, but that's one of the most important parts about community, right? Because one person can, one person can read this and think, oh, you know, X, Y, and Z. And then another person can read this and be like, well, actually, it's Z, Y, X is stated clearly if you would have known this just going into it. I know the obvious seems like it's the case, but it's not always. I'm being reminded, I wish I could speak more eloquently on this memory, but there's there was a a female archaeologist and there were these like other archaeologists who were really struggling to figure out why women had certain hairstyles or markings on their scalp or something like that. And it took this woman who was a hairstylist just being like, yeah, they're styling their hair. Like the, those are braids. Like mm. that's, that's your hair. It's, it's not serving a historical purpose. There's no function. It's fashion. Mm. And it was like, wow, like that makes perfect sense same principle it's the value of having different voices and while we may not reach like a true consensus i mean we usually do yeah i mean i think it just brings us right back to the question of what is divination you know and if if it's ultimately just about the singular inspired moment that a diviner has to observe the effect of something um you know it's just it's it's not going to contain a simple duality in the way we want to understand it to or wish it would be so yeah or the subjective nature of interpretation i think that's the core Mm -hmm. theme there is when you're doing textual studies if you're reading an ancient text you're reading it through your own lens of your own vantage point your own understanding of the language Mm -hmm. all the other things like factors you know your your current understanding of astrology Mm -hmm. like imagine if you're reading rhetorius as like a modern astrologer or as an Indian astrologer, or as a somebody that has a background in Renaissance astrology or mm-hmm. medieval astrology, what have you, like whatever your perspective is, you're bringing that a little bit to your subjective interpretation of that text. Um, and that's also true if you're reading a person's birth chart, like whatever your life experiences are, you're bringing those to bear for better or for worse on your interpretation of that person's life. Um, so maybe it's just a matter more of, of acknowledging that subjective that the subjective is a major component in astrology, while there are objective features, and I think that's actually really important, and it's one of the ways in which I disagree with 
like Jeffrey Cornelius and the view that astrology is entirely divinatory or entirely subjective, um, I think it's a huge component that needs to be recognized as well because it's not a purely objective phenomenon. There are, is a subjective component to it, which doesn't make it less valid. It's mm -hmm. actually just a different yeah. piece of it, and it needs to be recognized. They just dance with each other, you mm -hmm. know, the subjectivity right. and objectivity, and that's uh, that's all you can say about it. <laughs> Right. I mean, but I mean, this is getting a little bit out there, but subjectivity and objectivity are also just one of the same, right? We will mm -hmm. never be able to perceive any component of reality unless it's through our human bodies, through our personal experiences, and et cetera. But just like Schrodinger's cat earlier, you know, like the grass can't perceive you, right? Unless you're perceiving it, it can go. The same way where you have this kind of dialogue of change that happens over time where mm. I'm taking from this or I'm giving to it, right? Yeah. We have a overproduction of astrological literature and stuff like that, like with the printing press, right? Where everybody was giving almanacs and delineations for different political figures and everything. And we're starting to have a similar thing today, but you have this flourishing and all of this going out and then you have the recovery where the tide goes back yeah. and you really whatever remains is left in the sand right the and wave is definitely like cresting right now yeah I feel like we're we're on an uphill we're on like this really exciting phase but it's it's just going to come back to now is the time where you know collaborate experiment explore you know that's all we can do that's what we're doing on the show is just talking about what we think that the book is talking about and throwing charts up mm -hmm. and seeing how these things work if we try to interpret them you know from our perspective and that's all anyone can can do i think yeah, yeah. well and the point also is that the subjective is actually valid and is interesting and is important in and of itself like mm -hmm. the subjective component to something yeah even though we're used to in a, in a modern sort of scientific context um, that the scientific method is specifically designed in order to control for and to remove the subjective component of things as much as possible in an attempt to establish what is a, a sort of consensus reality of like what phenomena is actually occurring objectively outside of the, f the field of the observer. Um, astrology and blending both of those worlds um, shows you that the subjective component of things is actually valid and is just as important mm. in this sort of unique and mysterious way i think that it is worth exploring yeah totally i mean i i could talk about the scientific revolution forever but um one of the like biggest changes that happened with that is that we kind of saw this digression from things that are meaningful just in general have value and we moved more towards things that are measurable have value so if it can't be measured it can't be gauged it can't be it, it's not it's not valid it's not sound it's not reality and it's only recently i mean thomas kuhn's like structure of scientific revolutions played like a really big role in starting to like help academic and communities like college communities kind of shed that lens of like objectivity is the only important thing out there mm. um but truly i mean when the and the subjective does have so much value because you cannot have the objective without it right i don't i've had somewhere to take cocoon it'll come back to me 
Yeah, I mean, one, well, one of the important, so going back to a much earlier thread in our conversations, one of the other important, um, I feel like, foundational principles of astrology is that the, the location and perspective of the observer experiencing the events matters. Mm-hmm. And that's a principle of divination in general, um, but it's something that comes into importance with astrology that you cast the chart for the location and the time and the vantage point of the person who is born at that moment, and that the arrangement of the cosmos at that moment relative to that specific location is what's important and will give you signs or omens for something that will come in the future. Um, but that looking at things through that perspective, it's incorporating a subjective perspective because sometimes people will say, like, well, why don't you? cast like a heliocentric chart or why aren't you casting the birth chart for like the sun or something because the sun is the center of the solar system and part of the answer is that is because you're casting it for the person experiencing the phenomenon and their location in time and space and that that's part of the the equation that's the thing that's most important and so i think that's something that would be part of the cornerstone if we were trying to go back and create some of those foundational principles that are true for all astrologers that would be a major one of them from like a theoretical standpoint mm-hmm. yeah and it's just magical because it's like we know that wherever consciousness is inserting itself this program universe whatever it is it's gonna keep a record you know even though there's there's no like cosmic data bank like astro.com where you can look everything up you know somehow the universe is still keeping receipts for everything and everyone that happens and i think we all just literally co-create it by by being you know just by being down here and experiencing that like it's just all intertwined they have to happen together so as long as you know people continue to live and observe um and and say you know at this place in time this was the effect that happened down here as above the chart is has to reflect it somehow yeah and the subjective element of astrology really speaks to like one of its powers because for once, like the planets are the objective things here, right? Everyone in the whole world has these planets in this this position. Yeah, we have a finite but, data set, which right. well nowadays is maybe not so finite, but for a long time it was. You know, it was very much like we were given a, you know, a code, a structure, a program that now is just taking off. Well, I mean, it's still the thing, even if there's a subjective component that brings us back to the other, the objective component, which is that those planetary movements are happening like objectively out there, whether mm-hmm. we're aware of them or not. And that's one of the interesting components is that you can see astrology working still when you study the live, like biographies of famous people, you can see astrology operating still in their lives, even if they're not aware of it. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of where the more objective component of astrology lies that's interesting and provides an interesting um, the other part of the the more objective component in the phenomenon of it is that it's something that is objectively occurring out there, even if we're not paying attention to it. And that's also interesting and weird. Right. So the cat is dead and alive. You know, the astrology is working and it's not working if you don't know it is, but it is. Yeah, it's both subjectively can have a presence in your life that you're aware of and it can both objectively be existing out there in ways that you don't for example there's techniques that each of us is not aware of or is not paying attention to and doesn't know about or is not using but those techniques like let's say timing techniques there's some timing technique there's some obscure timing technique that works really well 
that's out there like a sort of clock like objectively timing things in your life and you're not aware of it at all but it's still sort of out there doing something someone may or may not discover it at some point or know that technique but um yeah it's just one of the ways in which astrology is out there operating objectively mm-hmm. yeah and i think just what what better a system to have created if you were you know the creator than than that right because we can still divine with bones like we were talking about you know you can still get symbolic truth but there's something about that that's not on par with any other system really yeah well that's actually really important like because yeah. it's that that i think makes astrology unique because in there's a there's a question about is astrology divination or is it not divination and in most ancient forms of divination they're based on using chance like phenomenon or the principle of fortune which is random and chaotic and indeterminate and then taking like a snapshot of in a moment of time like rolling some dice or you shuffle the tarot cards or you throw the coins for like the I Ching or what have you and the random or chance like phenomenon at that moment especially if you have an important inquiry or a question at that moment um like the sort of time and space collapse at that moment and that chance like phenomenon actually even though it should be random random and meaningless actually will provide you with a, an answer that is the opposite of that that is actually purposeful and is meaningful in some way um at that point in time but it has to be based on randomness like it has to be all the different forms of divination are the same in that they take that random or chance like phenomenon and somehow harness it in order to be able to tell you something about the future yeah and astrology is kind of like that um in that the chart is rotating and there's this random moment that's outside of anybody's control in terms of the moment of birth and i think that is the chance like element of astrology but then there's also this other objective phenomenon where the moment you're born all of the planetary movements and periods that will occur for the entirety of your life um decided are, are decided and are predictable and fixed and so you get this this weird that's one of the things that makes astrology unique as a form of divination and unlike other forms of divination is it has both that subjective chance like characteristic as well as an objective one mm-hmm. so were you saying that the birth is, could be compared to the throwing of the coins is that the idea that you were getting at that that moment is when the random action happens yeah because it's like we're all used to like with horary astrology like seeing that it's really easy for us to conceptualize as a parallel to like the tarot cards or the I Ching because the horary moment is when you ask the question to the astrologer and they cast a chart Mm-hmm. And the chart for that random moment in time um, will mysteriously reflect both the question as well as the an- outcome or the answer. Mm-hmm. And that one's easier for us to conceptualize as a form of divination because it's sort of similar in that you're taking just wherever the planets are placed, which seems random at that moment that you ask the question, and then generating the chart and the chart itself will actually produce meaningful answers at that time but the birth chart i think the way they conceptualized in the ancient world was similar in that you know especially back then um the moment of birth is not is out of anybody's control it's something that just happens at some specific point when you're born and that 
and that the randomness of that moment is the chance-like element mm. of the divination, um, and that that's that that part of that component or that component of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it it makes me again. I, I guess a lot of my my personal philosophy is a sort of meld with like different study I've done in quantum mechanics and quantum physics, because it just makes me think about that observation state, which is like when scientists are tracking the movement of like tiny particles. Essentially, what they're doing is they're just taking snapshots over and over and over again, and they can over time build up like a predictive model of where they think they'll be able to observe something, and they know within a range. Of space and time, they could find it here, and that's like the wave function. It's like the full potential, you know, well for where it could manifest. And then there's that instant that they observe it, and they they find it somewhere in that wave function, and it collapses. And so I think the birth is like in the same way where you know there's going to be this this wave function potential, or you know, a window of time where you know you can expect to get some kind of outcome, and then it just comes down to you know. It, you know the the exact timing of of how that's decided. You know, probably by an intelligence. You know, maybe greater than ourselves. Maybe it's a part of our our higher self or whatever you want to call it. The diamond. Maybe there's some, um, you know, management that they have in it being able to, uh, maybe tweak or or specify. You know, the birth second or whatever, and we don't know. But yeah, I guess, I guess it just makes me think about how like, it's until we observe it as a particle, it's a wave. You know, we observe it as a non-localized, you know, range of of space and of energy, and so there's just a continual interchange, and that's what E equals M C squared really is. It's like you can have energy in motion, you know, and it's like that combination of of movement and physical matter is uh they're always kind of like it's kind of like turning a shirt inside out and like back out. It's like this Klein bottle or like a weird multi-dimensional right thing that's just like flowing in and out of what we can even understand yeah um, that makes probably no sense i don't even know what i'm saying <laughs> right um yeah but that's why that's why i subtitled my book like hellenistic astrology the study of fate and fortune and i didn't really get a chance to or i sort of ran out of time and space to explain the fortune component but just that some of the ancient astrologers you viewed fortune as um subservient to fate um, in a way, and that it, fortune in some ways was helping to do the work of fate, mm. um, but through this chaotic or this random seeming uh, chance-like events, uh, but that were ultimately deliberate and purposeful, even though they seemed random on the surface. Yeah. Well, yeah. Doesn't Valen say like fortune and hope are both kind of like mistresses for fate? Am I saying that right? He kind of talks about how like and I guess maybe the fortune is like that observation and the hope is like that wave function where we'd like things to be in life or where we'd like to find something and then, you know, some outcome has to manifest and it will be somewhere within that range of what we can expect or predict based off of the astrology that we're practicing and observing. Yeah, well, and he, he also kind of says that like fortune and hope are distractions or are things that can lead you astray um, because they can have you wanting something that's not possible. Um, but that part of the purpose of astrology, at least for him in this more stoic mindset, was learning about the future so that you know what you have to accept about the future and that you can prepare yourself for it ahead of time so that you're not thrown off internally, but instead can adopt an internal sense of tr tranquility no matter what 
types of events happen. Um, and that was part of their like mindset at the time, which then brings up something you were kind of just talking about or something we could go into, which is that issue of, of the astrologer making predictions and what happens when you come up an event in your own life and, um, and something's about to happen and you can see it with the astrology and what role your ability to see that as an astrologer has. Because I think one of the things that we're not used to dealing with is that um, tied in with the prediction and the outcome is the fact that you're an astrologer and you're aware of it. And sometimes your knowledge of things actually influences events in, in the future mm-hmm. in a really striking way. Something that has really helped me because I'm trying to be better about not attempting to control things that I can't is setting up positive things for me to remember and reflect on during dark times, right? Um, If I know this is a good period of time and I'm having lots of fun with friends, take videos, take pictures and look back at them during that dark time. It's just a little thing, but it's something you can do ahead of time rather than once you're in the darkness of any given moment mm-hmm. is just kind of set yourself up for an internal positive experience like regardless of what's happening around yeah. like bettering emotional habits and stuff like that but i mean i found a tremendous amount of value in like being able to look on my calendar and be like okay like this day things are gonna change you know Mm -hmm. and i still do find a lot of value in knowing when things are going to be better or worse Mm -hmm. i yeah i feel like that's half of that's like the whole point right Mm -hmm. yeah well it's hard because like like you say we kind of have an influence on it when we observe it for ourselves and I do believe sort of, I guess just in my own spiritual perspective that like as much as we're, we have to question that balance between what is, you know, predetermined and what is of our creation in our life, um, I think at the bottom line, you know, like something we can say everyone can agree on that's an astrologer is that no matter what happens, the astrology is going to reflect it, mm-hmm. right? So it's like no matter in what, 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 what option you choose in any present moment, somehow there's going to be a compulsion or like necessity to move in one direction. And I think it's that kind of more um, like liminal space of being aware of what your transits are um, or what your time lords are doing that invite the opportunity to work with that energy because you know you have to experience it. And I think that's also could circle us back to why remediational practices are so powerful because um, I forget who said that quote some famous famous name but it was like failing to prepare is preparing to fail and i think with hard transits it's like yes there is an extent to which there are really challenging circumstances in people's lives that are not necessarily always surmountable or not necessarily um that we can you know take control of in our own two hands but i think going back to like what valen's perspective is is just knowing that you have to endure that that kind of inner strength building that resilience up um can do in some ways more on a spiritual level than just letting the mind kind of obsess and fly around about dealing with some kind of difficult situation when like you said you know there are things we just can't control and we have to kind of submit to that Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think that's actually a <clears throat> that's something I think each astrologer has to learn during the course of their career. Their studies of astrology is that can be definitely a pitfall of how not to obsess when you have difficult transits coming up or how to deal with that, especially when dealing with the more predictive forms of astrology that are a little bit more concrete or clear about which plant which periods are going to be difficult or or easy. And what do you do, you know, when you have a really difficult period coming up? That's still something I explore myself in terms of how to deal with that and what your reactions are and sort of gauging your reactions and what's sort of healthy or helpful versus what's not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my personal expect my personal standpoint, I was like into stoicism for a little while and I was like, I think maybe this might be a path that I want to walk down. And then I was like, actually, you know what? Like you should be able to revel in joy and suffer in pain. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. That's what happens. That's what life is about. That is part of the human experience. And trying to stifle that is not healthy, at least for me. And so, like, knowing that you have fun that's coming to the end, right? You get the five-minute warning at, like, the skate rink or whatever, whatever. You can tell that the movie's ending, whatever you want to give it. Really just taking some time to reflect on how this positive era has prepared you for what may be coming. Mm -hmm. And also recognizing you can usually start to see some of the threads emerging with like more challenges. Like you can usually, before it happens, you can kind of pick up on it. Making preparations like around that specific area of life doesn't always help either. So making prepar- fostering positivity independent of any potential negative right. experience that you may be having in the future. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Keeping, a, keeping those separate. I like those, that analogy of like the five minute warning that the skating rink is about to close. And because that's an interesting experience in of itself when you're nearing the end of a positive period as an astrologer and like seeing that and recognizing uh, something closing down or ending in your life. Uh, and reflecting on that is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of catharsis from that, and I think that's where a lot of the healing comes in in terms of the counseling space of an astrology reading for people. I mean, it depends on what someone's going through, but whether that is more like reflective work on seeing how their life has kind of come together and led them to where they are, or if it's just about talking about, you know, the last two months and what's changed, it's like that, that space and time for reflection is that perspective that allows for the door to close and for it to be a separate place in time and in your mind. Um, but I think astrologically, like observing that and like trying to track or understand how that can be predicted or what cycles work behind that, that's where there's kind of this game that we kind of learn as astrologers over time and kind of, you know, not having to be so overwhelmed by what you're looking at that you're making things confusing for yourself because i think it's honestly very i think it's usually very simple like astrology if it works well like it should should do what it does in a way that doesn't need to be so complex right or or take so much time and i think that's the beauty of some predictive forms of astrology Mm -hmm. um in the sense that you can get reassurance on the general energy for any period of time pretty specifically and that's also puzzling because again it brings us back to well how can that be but we know it is um yeah 
That's yeah. a good point because I found that repeatedly in my experience and I never stopped being a little amazed by that is how simple sometimes sometimes um, the correlation of a transit or a time lord period can be so much more simple um, that it catches you off guard in its simplicity and its elegance. Like my experience of like there was a Mercury retrograde in my fourth house and I went just had this internal compulsion to go back to where I grew up mm-hmm. in the house that I lived in earlier in my life. And I didn't think about that transit going into it. It was only as I was winding down and sort of like heading back and heading home from it that I sort of had this moment of reflection of like, mm-hmm. oh, Mercury's retrograde right now, my yeah. fourth house. Because, you know, sometimes as an astrologer, you think of the more elaborate or like a major event that would, would be mm-hmm. more, um, you're anticipating something more complex, but actually sometimes the way that both natal chart placements as well as transits and other timing techniques play out is sometimes subtler than you think it's going to be. And yeah. I think people often then overlook it because it's more subtle or because it's something they're taking for granted that isn't standing out for them. Mm-hmm. But sometimes if you, tr- if you articulate it to somebody else and you're talking to somebody else about it, they're able to tell you or to mirror that back to you and show you how that's actually a unique experience that not everybody is experiencing either in their life in general or at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, and in some ways, that's the value of an astrological consultation is getting that external sort of mirroring back to you from an, an individual who's objectively like outside of you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's kind of like that Pisces state where it's like it's kind of the end of the cycle and there's this brief breath of like, okay, it's like the next thing's about to start. Like I can kind of see the whole journey from how it's unfolded. Like even in like the day cycle, to me, Pisces is like just that deep dreaming state, you know, before you're going to wake up the next day. And it's kind of like that is where we, you know, we do have access to so many, um, so much internal uh, wisdom or or inspiration or memory or kind of weird you know it's like deja vu like the way all of our consciousness is kind of flowing it's like when we make time and space to you know do that for our lives and you don't need astrology for that you know you can just journal and and reflect on your life but astrology again it's awesome because it's mapped out and we can talk about it and be scientific about it but also you know come back to mixing the art and judgment because they both play with each other too Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i mean like Personally, I had a, I had like, I, I knew I was going to be injured when it was coming up. Like I knew it was going to happen last year. I had timed it. I had the week roughly estimated and I was eternally grateful for that. Right. Like that I had the time to prepare, but like, there's some things that you can't prepare for. Also, there's, there's always, sometimes you prepare and prepare and prepare and to no avail. Right. Yeah. It, and that's the lesson sometimes that you can't be prepared for everything in life and especially even as astrologers i feel like i'm bamboozled all the time Mm -hmm. by the universe we wouldn't keep learning if we weren't right so exactly and so like keeping that cognitive flexibility towards your personal delineations is really important because you sure you may think oh mercury retrograde in the fourth house like maybe i'm going to reorganize my bookshelves And that might happen, or you might end up visiting like your childhood home, right? As you were saying. So yeah, just maintaining that flexibility and open-mindedness is like really important too. Yeah, I think that's actually where freedom lies in astrology. And I've thought this for a while that even if astrology was completely deterministic, 
uh, if everything was completely predetermined in a person's life. Um, with astrology, the, there's too many possible manifestations of any one placement or transit or time lord period or what have you. There's multiple different ways in which that can manifest because astrology is archetypally predictive mm. um, so that you can never be certain until you actually experience right. the event, the, the particular manifestation or the exact manifestation, even if you get really close and even if your prediction ends up being you know, super close to what actually manifests, there's still going to be something about it that's slightly different than what you expected mm -hmm. because you can't always get all the particulars. You can mm -hmm. only get the rough outlines of it. Um, and yeah. so that, that may be, even in a completely deterministic mindset, if someone were to adopt that, um, that would be where freedom lies, is that you still have to probably push for and attempt to manifest the most... Um, positive or optimistic scenario possible and hope that it's that version of that even if it's a bad transit or what have you because you never know for sure 100 percent until you're there yeah mm -hmm. and i mean to me again it's like it goes back to that analogy like that's your wave function right there like your your optimization of getting precision is lessened the bigger your wave function is so if you're using all these techniques and throwing everything onto it your range of possibility for accuracy in the prediction is actually going down and this goes back to, I think, what we were saying earlier about the simplicity of, and beauty of transits. Like, right, like that's the foundation. When you keep it simple, the prediction is very accurate. And the symbolic systems are awesome. They all do work in their own different ways. And, you know, some people are going to resonate with some techniques more than others. But, like, transits, I think, are a great reminder that, like, you know, it, it, it is simple. It, it is a language to an extent. And the more that we want to throw onto it, we, we can discover more. But also, like, the more we kind of simplify that wave function and throw our potential for error down, you know, we just increase the error. I mean, so we increase the, the accuracy in the prediction. Yeah, I mean, transits are still the most important timing technique for me, and I think is the master timing technique of astrology, because that's the one that is connecting real-time events as they're happening with the movements of the planets in the sky mm -hmm. at that same time. And... Um, you don't have to accept any other philosophical uh, premises or or symbolic things like directions or which get like you know increasingly more abstract or more um, wild in terms of their symbolic assumptions that they're making. Whether it's like a day for a year or whether you're stacking planetary periods on top of each other or whatever. But with transits, it's just like did this event coincide with this transit and you can objectively say whether or not something happened that matched that symbolically or not i mean and transits are also really important because it's another way to measure time right you know oh my gosh it's been a whole jupiter square right i've changed so much since this has happened whereas sometimes you might have a tendency to just kind of go through and let everything like wow like pass you by so yeah and it's a it's a good reminder to slow down also yeah, yeah. well i think it's cool too because it makes me think of like how astrology is a language it's the coolest language because it's it's space and time mm -hmm. you know it's like there's um in like the ancient i guess system of like liberal arts you had like the quadrivium which was like a set of four different subjects that they would you know teach students over years and you, know, you begin with arithmetic which is just basic mathematics and then you learn you know geometry and kind of this way we can construct the same numbers and ratios in space and 
you know, you learn music theory, which is like harmony and kind of like how that progression happens over time. But then the fourth and final one was like astronomy or astrology, which is really kind of this cumulative like synthesis of it. It's, it's space and it's time and it's like in one unit, you can just say Saturn and you're describing so many different things at once. And I think that's why to pinpoint on transits can be so archetypally powerful because you're not straying from the archetype in terms of what it's programmed to do. You're not making any assumptions, you're not jumping, you know, to any conclusions. It's just like, yeah, Saturn return or, you know, a, you know, Aries rising or whatever you want to say. It's like, yeah, you're going to be able to say very specific things about that. Yeah, well, it's one of the um, really concretely empirical areas of astrology where you can, you know, either look forward into the future or look back into your past and say, you know, what happened during this time period when this transit was occurring and then connect it with an event that did or did not happen and learn something from it. Um, and I think that empirical component's like really, really important. Mm -hmm. Um, and then tying in what you were saying about like space and time, I'm actually really excited for when, like periodically in the history of astrology, there's some um, person that comes forward that's like an astrologer and also like a scientist who tries to um, connect astrology with whatever the prevailing scientific paradigm is at the time. Like Ptolemy was one of those people in the second century where he ha they had he tried to connect because he was like a polymath and he was writing all these works on many different areas of science and knowledge. And one of them that he wrote on was astrology. And he tried to situate astrology within the context of the scientific paradigm of what they how they thought the universe worked at the time. And that, you know, worked for many centuries in terms of what their view of the universe was. And there's going to be somebody that comes along again at some point that that tries to do that in terms of whatever the current scientific paradigm is, and I'll be really interested to see what that looks like or what that synthesis is. It may only be temporary because it may be something where, again, like Ptolemy, centuries later, a thousand years or two thousand years, we find out new things about how the universe works that invalidates or supersedes the old model, but at least for a period of time, it'll probably look pretty compelling and will connect astrology with some of the current scientific trends. Um, that have developed over the past, you know, century, like Einstein's work on relativity or other things like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a big age we're headed into, and yeah, if, if 2020 did anything for the world, it was definitely start a new intellectual renaissance in terms of how all these fields of knowledge are about to start mingling and expanding, and you know, the the rise of artificial intelligence and just what that's about to do to really kind of turn our world around is going to be really exciting to see unfold over the next few years and decades. Well, and so like we we are only one field of knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. And within astrology there's so many different fields. Right now we're at this kind of awkward stage in scientific progress. This is what I was going to say earlier about Kuhn. I'm so glad we came back here. We're at this kind of awkward stage where even the things that we think we know with certainty, we're having a difficult time putting the puzzle pieces together with what we thought we knew in the past and this new information that's coming into us. And so over the last 30 years, like we, we haven't had like a really powerful consensus in terms of like quantum mechanics, for example, because there's so many holes and things and that's leading us to and space, you know, in its entirety. We're needing to start to reevaluate some different things with matter and 
all of these givens, right? What was just accepted as true. And so, like, once the scientific community maybe gets a grip on, like, what's going on there, I feel like we might have a hard time kind of jumping in before they've kind of settled into, like, a consensus. But, like, astrology also, I feel like, is going through this sort of revolution where we had, like, the tradition was suddenly almost uprooted and we were like, hey, like, this astrology goes back like several thousand years mm-hmm. and it continued and remained constant for thousands wow. of years, actually until this one person in the last hundred years said this one thing right. and then it was changed. Yeah. And so like finding how to reintegrate what we think we know about the modern astrological world and modern astrological techniques and unionize that with the tradition and mm-hmm. The history of astrology and some of the different concepts both metaphysical and technical yeah. all of that i feel we we will probably need a little help settling that down before we can integrate into right. and i think ai the whole though, world yeah i think ai is going to be a big part of that because mm-hmm. as we are approaching you know the singularity which is sort of this consciousness shattering event for humans where artificial intelligence is going to become essentially um far or stronger theoretically um or I guess more capable or more powerful, whatever you want to call it, um, that we're also approaching an astrological singularity in terms of the ability for technology to start not just like tracking astrology and kind of confirming it in its own system, but like this question of where as a human lineage and tradition, we are creating new astrology. Like where is the, you know, how do we define what consciousness is within artificial intelligence? And how is its own consciousness evolution, just like humanity's, kind of accelerating in terms of the way that, you know, it could one day, you know, begin to discover things about, you know, advance, advancements in quantum mechanics or, you know, whatever, making some stupid new Time Lord system that's going to work better than all the others or whatever it is. Um, you know, it's like we're also kind of interfacing that merger of like, you know, science has these fractal parts that are coming together and so does the astrology community. And, these are coming together and this is all this human knowledge that's merging with ai it's like we're just we're it's just too early to really i think see how it's going to unfold but it's it's a big process of yoga a union that's brewing and and understandably like a lot of astrologers have reserves with like ai and astrology and like the digital world but like whether you like it or not, like our field is going to have to adapt if mm-hmm. we want to bring it forward with us right. in the next five hundred years. Yeah, <clears throat> I mean that's what I said on the AI episode recently. Was just whether you like what's happening with AI or not, it's going to be one of those things, kind of like the internet was in the nineties, and it was like there's some astrologers that like adapted and learned how to use those tools to accentuate or to enhance things they were already doing with astrology astrology and there are others that kind of didn't but um the ones that adapt tend to be the ones that thrive more and um historically astrologers do tend to be early adopters of new technology so i think astrologers will do okay but i think it's the choice that um that some people have and that we'll see people going different directions during the course of the next mm-hmm. few decades not just with that but also other emerging technologies i'm sure in the not too distant future mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. Um, but I think one of the things in the past 30 years um, that happened that was the most thing that the thing that was the most important about the traditional revival is 
rediscovering the theoretical principles of astrology that astrologers have been taking for granted, especially in terms of some of the technical principles and the technical construct of Western astrology. I think it was the rediscovery of the rationale for some of those things that had been lost um, or wasn't clearly understood. That's the most striking thing to me that I think has happened in the past 30 years. And I've been reflecting on that a lot lately, being surprised in what a at least relatively short span of time that astrologers have discovered all of these things about the system that astrologers have been using for the past 2,000 years and where it came from and how it came together. There was another discovery recently about the exaltations that I'm, interest, I'm looking forward to announcing soon that gets another step closer towards reconstructing like where those came from and what the basis was for that and how it integrates into the other techniques. And I'm just continually astonished by how a lot of this has been discovered over a relatively short span of time in just the past past two decades. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the whys of things are so crucial, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't know, just kind of tying that back to like our earlier conversation is it's it it's almost like foreign to me to imagine like a world with astrology without an answer to why. Like, yeah. why are the, why is this diurnal and this nocturnal? What is diurnal and nocturnal? I mean, like sect was reintroduced. So mm. yeah, like that whole premise, why is the zodiac in this order? Yeah. Couldn't tell yet. That's crazy. And that's like, there's so much value in the idea that we're going to be able to have answers to not only questions, but things that we didn't know we needed answers to. Right. Yeah. It's that's it's incredible. all those yeah, it's all those technical foundations that are gonna allow for more things to flourish yeah. in terms of you know, it's like however solid your foundation is is how big the house can be, right? Yeah. So it's just gonna allow with more reconstruction, it's like, yeah, the roots are growing and the branches are just growing higher. So mm-hmm. it's really cool to be a part of that that process where I think we're both very lucky to be. Yeah, that's a good analogy of like a foundation because then you building the foundation now that then we'll be able to build more structures upon or like higher structures upon in the future now that we've gone back and shorn up the foundations of of Western astrology. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, All right. I'm trying to think if there's any other topics we meant to touch on or anything we meant to discuss, because I think we've been talking for a couple of hours now, which is is a short podcast. But I don't know. I don't know about you guys and how you how you do it in terms of your podcast. But I uh, I tend to go a little long. I don't know if you're aware of that. Yeah, some reason. Oh, I never knew. No, not. I have no idea where we even are right now. All right, good. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I will not subject you to that because you've been such grace gracious guests who have come here to to visit me in the studio. I'll not subject you to a five or seven or ten hour podcast. That's I that's mean, okay. Yeah. I think we'd both be happy to stay and talk, honestly. Mm-hmm, but truly. um if you wanna if you wanna cut it here, we can. If you wanna take a break, we totally can do that. <laughs> We've had some really long episodes too. Sure. This is how we are all the time. This is what we we just talk this is like what you this. Do? Okay. Yeah, we that's the, kind of what we that's do. kind of just, we're in the car and we're like, so what do you think about like fact that yeah, whatever. Yeah. Well tell yeah. me about your podcast, uh a little bit about it. Yeah. So I mean like we're we're students of astrology, the eternal students, just looking to host like study group, I guess, kind mm-hmm. of a deal, right? Yeah. Like, um, nothing. I, we we try not to get too formal, 
we don't always manage to do that. We like to keep like a conversational tone. Yeah, yeah. I think we just try to keep um, keep what could normally be kind of maybe dry or bland or technical and just kind of insert more life into it. Like that's really, I think in yeah. our name is Mercury Uranus. It's like we're kind of trying to blend ancient and modern perspectives um, in practice and just kind of talk about the ways we're exploring that and finding that come up in yeah, in our research and our lives. Yeah, and I mean, like with um, ancient texts, like this current Rhetorius project that we're doing right now, this is kind of an idea that we want to carry forward into the future. And um, as somebody who like tried picking up Abu Mashar like two years ago and like crawled into a hole and was like, I feel like I can't read. Like I, I don't, I it. I would have loved to come across a podcast of somebody being like, so this author th said this like really crazy wordy sentence, but if you just reword it, it makes this much more sense. And so we're just trying to offer maybe like a little hand in places where there might not be as much aid, like understanding ancient texts. Yeah. Nice. And recently you've been reading through Rhetorius, I think as part of your episodes or series. Yeah, yeah, we got um we got the awesome green light from the AFA to shout yeah. out to them also for letting us do this great project. Like so cool. Yeah. So we've just been kind of going through from the initial chapters and kind of throwing some of the techniques he's adding onto the same chart and kind of synthesizing his approach because I think one of the great strengths with Rhetorius is like you mentioned earlier a passage where he's talking about synthesizing timing techniques and other t passages where he's talking mm -hmm. about how you synthesize reading a natal chart um that's lacking i think in a lot of other authors in mm -hmm. a way that rhetorius is really clear and explicit about using <laughs> a lot of different yeah. you know methods which is overwhelming and not really um reasonable you know in in many cases to throw all of that at a chart but you know we're talking about what 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 it was they said that they would practice or observe or look at in a chart and we're just seeing how how we can apply it yeah yeah and like like um sometimes reimagining different things like okay like spear bearing was a recent episode that we did mm -hmm. it was a technique that was reserved for like elites pretty much like unless you met like every single check you checked off every single item on this list like you would not have it but the different lists that are given for what's needed vary from author to author. So what are those core principles that we see being repeated in different places? And how can you apply that to delineation as a whole mm -hmm. rather than just saying, oh, nobody has an angular exalted planet, even though you have two angular planets, nothing good could ever come of this. So yeah. yeah, I mean that's a good example because that technique, like you said, is very specific for offering, like you know, protection or I don't know, indication for eminence or whatever. But like everyone is kind of you know protected in in their own way, in their community or in their family or you know, and it's it's that thinking that we apply to a lot of those techniques in terms of how can this sound like a really bland binary kind of like you know ancient way of, of talking about someone's life or or someone's experience, and how can we kind of encapsulate that into like a more lived and embodied experience of what that astrology is mm -hmm. like alluding to yeah we use like current dialects rather than like and historical yeah. yeah yeah that's really important that process of 
adapting the astrological tradition to modern times and to whatever the contemporary society is like is a process that I think different um, eras, different astrologers and different eras always go through. And it's one that's kind of important now as society is growing and changing. And um, yeah, how to make some of this material relatable in a modern context. Yeah, totally. Cool. All right. So uh, where do you release the podcast or how can people find it? Um, so you can find it on YouTube at the Mercuranians. That's M E R C U R A N I A N S. A little bit longer, name, but the archetype serves. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and uh, it's also on Spotify. Yeah. So um, season one we have on like pretty much everything: um, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, Anchor. Um, I feel like something else also. It's out but season there. two, Retorius, we're just live streaming on YouTube. Yeah. Right now, and if so. you catch us live, we will absolutely respond to your comments. Like we're there involved with the audience. So yeah. yeah. Nice. Tune in. All right. Well, I'll put a link to it uh, in the description below this video on YouTube or on the podcast website for this episode and to where people can find out more information about you. And you're both also on like social media, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you yeah. do? You have individual like URLs or handles? Yeah. Uh, so I'm Cameron or Omega Astrology um, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm Stellar Astrology, um, S T E L L A R. S-T-R-O-L-O-G-Y, however you spell astrology. Um, but I, yeah, I'm there on Twitter mostly. Um, I've been kind of like detoxed from the digital world lately. That was part of my Mercury like retrograde return, thankfully. But um, I'm around. I'm around enough to say hi. And I love to talk to people online. Like I genuinely enjoy like having kinds of conversations with them. Like sometimes we're in Twitter spaces too. Twitter spaces are so fun with astrologers. It's like it's a virtual like, Zoom hangout, yeah. basically, if you don't know. It's uh -huh. just... But it's so casual, too. It's really nice. Yeah. Nice. So, yeah, catch us online. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for hosting us, Chris. Yeah, it's really you, Chris. been a pleasure. Yeah, I'm glad this worked out. I'm glad we could do it. And then it lined up uh, with the synchronicity in terms of Mercury conjunct Uranus today and it being kind of a chance thing. But uh, I'm, gl I'm glad we did it. So thanks for joining me. Yeah. yeah. Thank you thank so much, you. Chris. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks everyone for watching or listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast, and we'll see you again next time. A special thanks to all the patrons that helped to support the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, shout out to the patrons on our producers tier, including Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Mimi Stargazer, and Jean Marie Kaplan. If you appreciate the work I'm doing here on the podcast and you'd like to find a way to support it, then please consider becoming a patron through our page on patreon.com. In exchange, you can get access to bonus content that's only available to patrons of the podcast, such as early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of the monthly forecast episodes, our monthly auspicious elections podcast, or another exclusive podcast series called the Casual Astrology Podcast, or you can even get your name listed in the credits at the end of each episode. For more information, visit patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. If you're looking to get an astrological consultation, we have a list of recommended astrologers at theastrologypodcast.com slash consultations. The astrologers on the list are friends of the podcast that have been featured in different episodes over the years, 
and they have different specialties such as natal astrology, electional astrology, sinistry, rectification, or horary astrology. You can get a 10% discount when you book a consultation with one of the astrologers on our list by using the promo code ASTROLOGYPODCAST. The astrology software that we use and recommend here on the podcast is called Solar Fire for Windows, which is available for the PC at alabe.com. Use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we recommend a software program called Astro Gold for Mac OS, which is from the creators of Solar Fire for PC, and it includes both modern and traditional techniques. You can find out more information at astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code ASTROPODCAST15 to get a 15% discount. If you'd like to learn more about my approach to astrology, then I'd recommend checking out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune, where I go over the history, philosophy, and techniques of ancient astrology, taking people from beginner up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. You can get a print copy of the book through Amazon or other online retailers, or there's an ebook version available through Google Books. If you're really looking to expand your studies of astrology, then I would recommend my Hellenistic Astrology course, which is an online course on ancient astrology where I take people through basic concepts up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. There's over 100 hours of video lectures as well as guided readings of ancient texts, and by the time you finish the course, you will have a strong foundation in how to read birth charts as well as make predictions. You can find out more information at courses.theastrologyschool.com. And finally, thanks to our sponsors, including The Mountain Astrologer Magazine, which is a quarterly astrology magazine which you can read in print or online at mountainastrologer.com. 